Today's podcast is on sepsis of unclear source, which we'll call sepsis NYD. We have four learning objectives. One, to distinguish between sepsis, septic shock, infection with systemic features, and bacteremia. Two, to describe the workup of a patient with sepsis NYD. Three, to discuss considerations for appropriate empiric therapy for a patient with sepsis NYD. And four, to apply this knowledge to a patient case. Since there is a lot of confusion with respect to what constitutes sepsis, we're going to start off this podcast with a game of septic or not septic. We're going to present three cases, and we want you to mentally decide whether the patient is septic, not septic, or if we don't have enough information to determine one way or another, and then we're going to talk about it. So case one, a 51-year-old female presents with fevers, chills, sweats, increased work of breathing, and purulent cough over the last 48 hours. On arrival, blood pressure is 121 over 83, heart rate is 104, respirate is 25, and she's satting 94% on 6 liters. Lights are normal, and serum creatinine is 58. Lactate is 1.8 millimoles per liter. Blood cultures are drawn and returned positive 2 for 2. Strep pneumonia, with a time to positivity of 14 hours. Case 2. A 68-year-old male presents with fever, chills, sweats, increased work of breathing, and purulent cough over the last 72 hours. On arrival, blood pressure is 88 over 56, heart rate is 133, respirate is 28, and SATs are 96% on 15 liters a minute. Non-rebreather. Lights are relatively normal, but serum creatinine is up to 216 with no known history of CKD. Lactate is 4.1 millimoles per liter. Blood cultures are drawn and return negative 2 for 2. Case 3. A 29-year-old motorcyclist presents post-MVA with significant blood loss. He's hypotensive with blood pressure of 78 over 46, his heart rate is 145, his rest rate is 28, and he's satting 96% on 6 liters. He's about to be intubated because of the extent of his injuries. Lights are normal, though chloride's a bit elevated, and lactate is up to 5.9 millimoles per liter. So to recognize which of the above cases are sepsis, we need to define sepsis. While sepsis has always been recognized as a dysregulated host response to an infectious process, the way we recognize or define sepsis has changed over time. Years ago, the SERS criteria was used to recognize sepsis, and after that, the SOFA score. Now it's recognized that no scoring system is really adequate to rely on. The sepsis 3 definition of sepsis defines sepsis as an infectious process resulting in life-threatening end-organ compromise, and septic shock being fluid refractory shock secondary to an infectious process. So really, when we're evaluating our patients for sepsis with that criteria in mind, we need to have evidence of an infectious process with systemic response, along with signs of life-threatening end-organ compromise. Unfortunately, there's no scoring system that can tell us whether or not somebody is septic, and we need to use some judgment. So back to the three cases. First off, sepsis has to have an infection precipitating the observed end-organ compromise. So we can look at cases 1 to 3 and rule out any that don't have an infection present. Case 1 and 2 both sound like the patient has infectious features. Although case 3 is shock, it is hypovolemic shock with no infectious sources. Right, so we rule out case 3, the MVA, which leaves us with cases 1 and 2. These are patients with infectious features, so let's see which ones may be consistent with sepsis. Looking at case 1, the patient has bacteremia and an infection with systemic features, but is hemodynamically stable and does not have signs of end-organ malperfusion. Serum creatinine is normal and lactate is normal, so I would say this patient isn't septic. And note that the patient is bacteremic, but this has no bearing on whether or not the patient is septic. Bacteremia is simply the presence of bacteria cultured in the bloodstream secondary to an infectious process. This doesn't tell us anything about the host response or whether or not the patient is septic. Okay, so that leaves case two. For case two, we have a patient with infectious source and clear end-organ malperfusion. Serum creatinine and lactate are up due to the underlying infectious process and systemic response. Here, we have sepsis. 
If we were to administer fluids and the patient's hemodynamics do not improve, we would have septic shock. In septic shock, the inflammatory process caused by the host response is so robust that we get vasodilation secondary to the inflammatory mediators, microvascular damage, and leaky capillaries. Ultimately, this damage leads to the inability to maintain vascular tone and inability to perfuse organs, even if we administer IV fluids. Hence, this is fluid refractory, aka septic shock. Okay, now we've gone through some examples of identifying sepsis. Truthfully, in eMERGE, we often call people septic who don't meet these criteria. In practice, the word sepsis is very overused. The clinical implications of sepsis versus just a systemic infection are far-reaching. Sepsis is associated with 50% mortality if effective antimicrobial therapy isn't started within six hours of the patient presenting. The mortality is so high that we have the surviving sepsis guidelines dedicated to try to improve survival of sepsis. A systemic infection without sepsis doesn't carry anywhere near the same severity of prognosis. We see endocarditis patients who are bactremic for weeks without treatment, and sometimes bactremic for weeks on treatment, and they don't acutely deteriorate. These patients clearly have an underlying systemic infection because they're bactremic, but they're not septic. So when we overuse the word sepsis, we can actually cause harm because it loses the urgency and blurs together everyone with a systemic infection. This stops patients who are truly septic from getting treated with the urgency that they require. So let's say we have a patient with infectious features and life-threatening end-organ compromise, so true sepsis. Where do we go from here? Management of sepsis has multiple elements. Luckily, most institutions have order sets for sepsis to ensure we optimize care because it's so complicated. So we're going to focus this podcast on just the infection management aspect of sepsis, not the critical care elements to management like fluid resuscitation, central lines, vasopressors for shock, and all of those considerations. Ultimately, the infection management aspect of sepsis is predicated on identification of the source of infection because this helps us target our antibiotics, our investigations, and any other interventions like source control procedures. So we need to do a workup for source so that we know what to culture, what empiric regimens we may be looking at, and if we have a surgical emergency or more. And the way we identify source of infection in sepsis is localizing symptoms and individual patient risk factors. But we know that while this sounds simple enough, identification of source of sepsis can be challenging in practice. Septic patients are often confused, weak, and unable to really articulate where they may be experiencing pain or discomfort. For example, the patient may be elderly and delirious, unable to tell us if they have pain or particular symptoms. Patients may not even have clear localizing symptoms in some infections, for example, if they can't mount a local inflammatory response. Or, patients may have symptoms that are actually a red herring. We encounter this in practice commonly in sepsis when we have patients with an elevated respiratory rate to compensate for lactic acidosis, breathing fast to blow off the carbon dioxide. This may seem like localized respiratory symptoms pointing to a pulmonary source like pneumonia, when in fact their source of infection is entirely different. So while we always do our review of systems to identify any pain or discomfort that might point to a possible source, This may not always yield our source. However, sometimes we do get lucky and our localizing symptoms are decisive enough that we can narrow down our source pretty confidently. Right, and when that happens, it's easy enough to know how to proceed. We culture and obtain diagnostic imaging as needed, and we tailor our antibiotics and management plan to that suspected source, keeping in mind the high mortality of sepsis and treating aggressively. Okay, but what if the patient isn't really localizing symptoms at all? Then how do we identify the source and manage? At that point... We would look at individual patient risk factors based on their medical history. We start by looking for any comorbidities that indicate compromised host defenses. Since we know anytime host defenses are damaged, we have the potential for our normal colonizers to invade and become pathogenic, or we have the opportunity for non-flora to invade. Particular red flag comorbidities include things like indwelling hardware, for example, a pacemaker, central line, or prosthetic joint, recent procedures, recent injuries, or chronic conditions like wounds or poor dentition, 
All of these point to possible compromised host defenses that might create an environment amenable to the start of an infection. So when we're consulted regarding a sepsis NYD, we have to do a thorough head-to-toe assessment looking at our patient's history to identify anything that could point to a source. And we should seriously consider any possible sources at all. It's better to investigate a possible source and rule it out than to dismiss it up front and miss the source. So when we don't have clear localizing symptoms and have to look at patient risk factors to identify possible sources, we often wind up in situations where we have multiple potential sources to evaluate. And in that case, we would investigate them in order of most probable to least probable cause, and we would ensure our antimicrobial regimen covers all of our reasonably plausible sources. For example, let's say we get a call about a patient post-STEMI just out of the ICU who's now got rising inflammatory markers, fevers, and has a new AKI. The patient is not localizing any symptoms. We do a review of systems to identify any possible comorbidities, hardware, procedures, or injuries that might predispose to infection. From a head-to-toe assessment of comorbidities and risk factors, we only identify three major compromised host defenses that offer possible sources. We identify that our patient just had a PCI, so we look for pseudoaneurysm at the radial artery where they accessed for PCI and rule it out. Then we note that the patient has a central line and a urinary catheter, so indwelling hardware. Both are possible sources of sepsis, so we would investigate both. We would obtain peripheral blood cultures and cultures from the central line to compare differential time to positivity to investigate line infection, and we would change the urinary catheter to obtain a urinalysis and a good quality urine culture. Then, with respect to antibiotic therapy, well, central line infections often involve gram-positive pathogens, while pyelonephritis is usually a gram-negative infection. So we would need broad-spectrum therapy targeted at both gram-positive and gram-negative organisms for this nosocomial sepsis NYD. We would then tailor our antibiotics once our investigations come back and we've discerned the probable source. Another example, we have a new onset sepsis in an intubated patient with COVID on day 9 of the ventilator. He can't localize symptoms for us even during a sedation vacation. We review head-to-toe and we look at our patient's comorbidities. We identify possible sources of infection in his ventilator, his central line, and his urinary catheter. So starting with the VAP, we would look at when is systemic infectious symptoms onset, and then we would compare ventilator settings before and after to evaluate for a new pneumonia. We would also look at the patient's chest x-rays to see if there's been convincing changes, like new consolidation, concordant with those symptoms. If after our assessment we're worried about a VAP, ventilator-associated pneumonia, we would obtain an endotracheal aspirate. Then we look at his other possible sources, just like the previous patient that we just described. Our patient has a central line and urinary catheter. So we would similarly work up for a central line infection and a catheter-associated UTI, just like we discussed for the other patient. Then we would initiate broad-spectrum therapy, ensuring we provided adequate treatment for all of our plausible sources of infection. And once our investigations come back, we would again reassess our antibiotics and try to tailor them to our suspected source. So what these cases illustrate is that, one, even when we can't localize source of infection by patient symptoms, we can use risk factors to narrow it down. And two, we may often be in situations where we can't fully narrow down source of infection and instead we have multiple competing sources. When we have competing sources, we have to evaluate them all appropriately and then provide antimicrobial therapy while awaiting the results of our investigations and cultures. And you'll notice, in the two examples we just discussed, we wound up providing broad-spectrum therapy. Both of these examples necessitated broad-spectrum therapy because they were nosocomial sepsis, that is to say, the infection onset in hospital. If we think back to our Bugs and Drugs podcast, nosocomial infections involve more resistant gram-negative bacilli than community-onset infections. And again, in true sepsis, the consequences of not treating promptly are dire. So we're aggressive with our therapy, especially if we don't have localizing symptoms and are instead dealing with multiple competing plausible sources of infection. But the patient's environment when the infection onset matters. 
If we have a community onset sepsis, we're generally less aggressive than nosocomial sepsis because we know even if it's a gram-negative infection like pyelonephritis, the risks of resistant organisms are less unless the host has repeatedly been exposed to systemic antibiotics. So if we're almost always treating aggressively for nosocomial sepsis NYD, how do we practice good stewardship in these situations? First of all, we need to make sure we're only initiating sepsis protocols for patients who are actually plausibly septic. If your patient has systemic signs of infection but doesn't have end organ compromise, the implications are just not the same and this isn't sepsis. We have more time to do a thorough evaluation and identify the source in that circumstance, and we don't need to be as aggressive with empiric therapy. In cases of true sepsis, especially when we have multiple competing potential sources and we have to go broad on our antibiotics, the best way to optimize stewardship and mitigate harms is to ensure we investigate thoroughly. By investigating thoroughly, even if we start with extremely broad-spectrum therapy, we're able to reassess and de-escalate therapy in a timely way. When we make sure we culture adequately and evaluate source infection adequately, we're building our understanding of our patient's clinical context so that we can reassess when results return. So to summarize, if we're called about a sepsis NYD, we need to recognize the urgency and assess quickly. We start by initiating supportive care as per our usual institutional guidelines for critical care, which we won't touch on here, but includes interventions like aggressive fluid resuscitation. Then, with respect to infectious evaluation of our sepsis, our priority is identifying source of infection to tailor our antibiotics and investigations. So we first try to ascertain localizing symptoms, which are often extremely helpful at narrowing down source. Then we look through the patient history and go head to toe, evaluating individual patient risk factors, which includes any hardware, procedure, injury, or chronic condition that damages host defenses. We then investigate these by obtaining cultures and diagnostic imaging of any plausible sources of infection, as well as obtaining blood cultures. When it comes to empiric antibiotics, we select antimicrobial therapy that will cover our most likely sources. Then we also consider any further interventions that might be needed, like surgical source control. Once investigations return, we tailor antibiotics to the most likely source. That's right. Ultimately, sepsis workup is about identifying possible sources by evaluating localizing symptoms and individual patient risk factors, investigating those sources by diagnostic imaging and cultures, and then managing the source by effective antibiotics and any other interventions like source control procedures that may be necessary. And to be good stewards in this setting, we're thorough in our workup so that we can reassess antibiotics once our investigations return and we can tailor them. Okay, so what happens if we genuinely have no clear potential sources? A perfectly healthy patient presents the hospital with fevers, elevated white blood cells, and in pronounced AKI, and is so confused that they can't localize symptoms. They get intubated quickly, then we have no risk factors to point us to a source and our patient can't localize symptoms. Or similarly, a patient comes in and we just have no past medical history on them because they're from out of province and they're confused and they can't give us a good history. Then we would go head to toe with physical exam to try to identify anything and we would take more of a shotgun approach. We would pan culture, pan image, start broad spectrum therapy and hope our evaluation yields a plausible infectious source to which we can tailor our antibiotics. Truthfully in practice, this patient isn't that common. Now let's apply what we've learned to a clinical case. You're on CTU and receive a call from the bedside nurse who is concerned about a 58-year-old male patient with known cholangiosarcoma with an internal metallic biliary stent, day five of admission. He initially presented with frank jaundice and stent obstruction and underwent stent exchange three days ago. He had improved significantly following stent exchange and bilirubin had come down. The nurse describes that compared to yesterday, the patient is now fatigued, less responsive, and remains jaundiced. Over the course of her shift over the last few hours, he's become mildly diaphoretic and is experiencing rigors. He spiked two fevers of 38.3 and 38.8. His blood pressure is lower than it has been, down to 98 over 69 from a baseline of 130s over 90s. 
You go to the patient's room and agree with the nursing impression that the patient appears to have deteriorated from yesterday. And for past medical history, the patient has hypertension as well as cholangiosarcoma, but his past medical history otherwise is unremarkable. You do a quick physical exam and review of systems. For head and neck, the patient is alert and oriented to person and place, but not to date or event, which he had been previously. He does not endorse pain and is fatigued and less responsive than he had been. He is mildly diaphoretic. For respiratory status, he is not working to breathe and he has not been producing sputum. Respirate is mildly elevated at 22, but he does not have diminished breath sounds to the bases, though he does have some dullness to percussion at the base of his right lung. CVS is unremarkable, there is no pacemaker present, and blood pressure is soft as nursing noted. Abdomen is soft and distended, but not noticeably changed from yesterday. He does appear to guard a bit on exam to the right side and centrally. He is non-peritinitic. For GU, indwelling Foley has been present for four days. Seven hours into the shift, it has produced 280 milliliters of urine, so 0.51 mils per kilo per hour. Yesterday, urine output had been normal. Skin and extremities. There's no central line. There's mild jaundice, but no wounds or other apparent abnormalities. And there's no edema. So to summarize, we have a patient with cholangiosarcoma and known biliary stent who initially presented with signs of stent obstruction. He improved after stent exchange, but he now has new fever and rigors, hemodynamic changes, reduced urine output, and worsening confusion. So our first question, is this patient septic? The patient has systemic infectious features, mental status changes, and has reduced urine output. He meets the rifle criteria as having renal injury, which is an international classification system for acute kidney injury. Accordingly, even without labs, we can identify that he has infection with end-organ compromise. So we've got a sepsis NYD. What are our next steps? Well, we would start with institutional sepsis care protocols for all the critical care elements of patient management, like fluid resuscitation. And as kind of a side note, since the patient is septic, hypotensive, and an AKI, we would hold perindopril if not already held. After that, we need to identify our source of infection using localizing symptoms and patient risk factors. So our patient has some localizing symptoms. He's guarding on abdominal exam, though granted, he did recently have a minor procedure for stent exchange. He also has mild jaundice, though we don't know the clinical course of his jaundice throughout his admission because we haven't followed the patient longitudinally. He's otherwise not seemingly localizing any symptoms, which we evaluated with our thorough head-to-toe review of systems. So our localizing symptoms of abdominal pain would point us most likely to a possible GI or a GU source. Then we consider his individual patient risk factors, any comorbidities or past medical history that points us to compromised host defenses that could predispose to infection. So we go head to toe considering his comorbidities, but he doesn't really have much in his past medical history, just the hypertension and the cholangiosarcoma. He doesn't have any other hardware that could produce infections without localizing symptoms like a central venous catheter, pacemaker, or prosthetic heart valve, or prosthetic joint. We know he has a major risk factor for infection in his biliary stent, obstruction of which is what brought him to hospital in the first place. He just had the stent exchanged, so it's possible he's having complications secondary to this. He also has an indwelling Foley catheter that we noticed in our review of systems, which predisposes him to a catheter-associated UTI. Looking at his risk factors, we are worried about either biliary infection or a catheter-associated UTI. Right, so now let's do our investigations and discern our appropriate empiric therapy. Then we can consider if we need any additional interventions beyond antibiotics. So for investigations... First, we have to obtain cultures. We need to make sure that we do this before antibiotics are started to maximize yield if possible. We would start with ordering blood cultures stat. We can't really culture his biliary stent since it's an internal stent. We can exchange the urinary catheter and draw a urine culture, so we should do that as well. 
So after narrowing down to our possible sources, we ordered the relevant cultures as part of our investigations. In this case, there are some additional investigations that may help us evaluate our patient as well. He's post-op and has an internal biliary stent that has already obstructed recently, necessitating intervention. So, in addition to other lab work that we would already have drawn as part of most sepsis order sets, if not already done, we should order LFTs because something like biliary stent obstruction could plausibly produce his symptoms and might be his source of sepsis. If this were the case, we would expect to see an elevated ALP and bilirubin rising since his procedure. Okay, and also in the realm of investigations, to ensure stents are draining, we could order an ultrasound. Right, an ultrasound could be helpful, but unless one of our POCUS trained colleagues can help us out, we're likely to get stat blood work back first, including our LFTs, before ultrasound. Since the patient has suspected sepsis, once we get LFTs back, if the bilirubin and ALP are rising again compared to after his stent was exchanged, we would call his surgical team because at that point, it would point pretty convincingly to a biliary source. If, on the other hand, LFTs were normal or still declining after his stent exchange, we might operate under the assumption of a catheter-associated UTI. Okay, so this brings us now to initiating empiric antibiotics targeted to the source. First, we need to think through whether this is a community or nosocomial infection. At this point, the patient has been in the hospital for five days, and he just underwent a procedure in hospital. We know from earlier podcasts that his flora has now shifted to nosocomial flora. So already, we know once patients shift to nosocomial flora, they tend to be colonized with more resistant gram-negative bacilli. So we would worry not just about our community PEC gram-negatives, but also perhaps our space organisms and other more resistant gram-negatives. That said... Five days is still fairly early on in his admission, so his risk for resistant organisms wouldn't be quite as high as someone who had been hospitalized for several weeks or someone who was hospitalized and had repeated exposure to systemic antibiotics. Second, with respect to targeting antibiotics, we know that gram-negative bacilli are the most likely causes of biliary infections and catheter-associated UTIs, our two plausible sources of infection. Accordingly, at this time, we would start broad-spectrum therapy targeted to gram-negative pathogens, including our more resistant nosocomial gram-negatives. Since he is post-stent exchange, it could plausibly be that there would be gram-positives involved in the infection as well, since these organisms are frequently involved in hardware infections. So we would probably want staph aureus coverage as well, but we would be less concerned about other gram-positives. With respect to whether he needs empiric treatment for MRSA, or if we can just cover MSSA, we would try to ascertain this by looking at any previous culture results and any MRSA surveillance swabs. We would also try to assess for MRSA risk factors, such as a history of boils, his employment, previous involvement in team sports prior to his illness, to name a few. If he was MRSA colonized or had risk factors for MRSA, as he is post-op, we would consider empiric MRSA coverage. So to cover MSSA along with nosocomial gram-negatives like ESBL E. coli and Klebsiella and our space organisms, we would initiate treatment with either piptazo or carbapenem. If he had recently been exposed to systemic antibiotics, had a history of infections with resistant gram-negative bacteria, or had other risk factors for very resistant gram-negative bacilli, we would favor the carbapenems. If not, it would be reasonable to do high-dose piptazo, depending on the local antibiogram, since he is still fairly early on in his admission. And, as mentioned, while awaiting investigation results and covering for possible stent infection, we would evaluate our need for MRSA coverage and add vancomycin to our piptazo if empiric MRSA coverage is indicated. Again, while Staph aureus isn't a common intra-abdominal pathogen, it is relevant to consider in a patient with infectious symptoms after newly placed hardware. So now that we've covered our initial bases and started effective empiric therapy, we need to consider whether we need additional interventions. And as we've already mentioned, given his recent surgical procedure, this patient likely requires surgical consultation with the team who replaced his biliary stents. Also, if he does not respond to fluid bolus and resuscitative efforts and remains hypotensive, the ICU can also be consulted. Right. Okay. 
So now let's say his labs return. We trend the bilirubin. His bilirubin had been 376 millimoles per liter on arrival, prior to stent exchange for the initial obstruction, and then dropped to 143 post-stent exchange. Now we notice that the bilirubin is climbing again and is up to 268. Lights are normal, but lactate is elevated at 3.6, and serum creatinine is up to 204, when just yesterday it was only 98. Despite this, after fluid bolus, his blood pressure has improved to 118 over 88, heart rate is 100, and respirate is 21. What's your impression then? The labs do support a biliary source, which fits with his localizing symptoms and his risk factors. Since his total bilirubin is up after stent exchange, it sounds like the stent might be obstructed or out of position. He's responded to fluids, which is reassuring that he's not in septic shock, but his lactate is up and he does have clear sepsis. So I would carefully look through his microbiology history and antibiotic use history, and then start him on high-dose piptazo if nothing pointed me to needing a carbapenem. I would add vancomycin for MRSA coverage depending on the presence or absence of risk factors as described. Or if I can't ascertain risk factors, I would probably give one dose of vancomycin and then reassess. Then I would wait for the ultrasound, continue monitoring the patient to ensure he responds to fluids and that I don't need to get the ICU team involved, as well as wait for the surgical team to come by. Right, so we've identified our probable source of sepsis for our patient, investigated appropriately, and then initiated treatment effectively, and we've consulted surgery. So that concludes our case. What are our take-homes for this podcast? 1. Sepsis is a dysregulated host response to an infectious process with consequent end-organ malperfusion. The term sepsis is overused in practice to the detriment of care. 2. Septic shock is sepsis that is not responsive to fluid resuscitation. 3. Initiation of effective empiric antibiotics is critical for patient outcomes in sepsis, which is associated with extremely high mortality. 4. Identification of source of infection is fundamental to appropriate management of sepsis. Localizing symptoms and individual patient risk factors like hardware, procedures, or injury can point us to the source. Diagnostic imaging and cultures can help us confirm that source and further target treatment. 5. While empiric therapy and sepsis NYD may be broad, thorough investigations including cultures and diagnostic imaging can help us tailor our antibiotics and prevent adverse effects for our patients and society from antibiotic overuse. So that concludes our podcast. Thanks for listening.